Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Today's guest is Ashley Carlisle, Chief Marketing Officer at Hyperdraft, Inc., a company providing AI-powered legal automation software solutions for big law firms, lead boutique law firms, and Fortune 100 legal departments. Ashley was a corporate attorney at Goodwin when she met Hyperdraft founder Tony Tai, a prior guest on the pod, and decided to join him in helping build the startup. As CMO, she shares her passion for making the legal profession more enjoyable and sustainable with modern technology. In today's conversation, Ashley talks about generative AI's recent impact on legal innovation efforts, deciding to be a lawyer when she was in fifth grade, what she learned as an associate at a law firm, and the challenges of legal marketing. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thanks for listening in. Ashley, thanks so much for making the time to chat with me today. Great to see you, and thanks for having me. Happy to have you. Let's start. Let's talk a little bit about your current gig. I want to talk about your professional background and your journey that got you here. But let's let's start by talking about Hyperdraft. You're the marketing officer. Give me the basics. Give me the basic marketing spiel. What does Hyperdraft do? What problem is it solving? And I will, for those listening along, I'll try to limit the use of AI because I know us marketing folks have, you know, used that as an adjective too much as of late. Oh, we've so given, thank you, but we've given up on, on that. We just... <laughs> So um, Hyperdraft, we help organizations scale legal work. That is the main problem that we hope to solve. We find that most organizations have a lot of legacy processes that make legal work and other work with documentation just way more annoying and less productive than it should be. So we provide um, AI-powered document and workflow automation solutions for organizations, and we are a trusted technology partner to companies in a variety of industries. We have a sweet spot in healthcare, finance, private equity, and real estate. But mainly, we are helping people take these tedious, voluminous documentation processes and digitize them with document and workflow automation. Give me an example of, of, of that, whether it's in healthcare or somewhere else. What would a typical problem be? So I actually just had a call this morning with a very large healthcare company here in California. And as you can imagine, there are so many stages in kind of how they operate their business that require a large mass or large corpus of documents. And one of the main issues they have is making sure that all the data is connected, everything is updated, and that people are working off of, you know, the latest forms and that they have visibility to see how they're being used throughout an organization. So our platform, we help with document drafting, we help with workflows, and we also help with kind of the visibility of all of the contract data and the reporting. So we would go in and we basically would say, okay, so what is the biggest document processing problem you're having? We will go ahead and set up your updated templates into our system. Unlike what you were doing before, which what they were telling me earlier today, they have doctors manually input info into an iPad or into a note that then a secretary puts into a form document. Doctors, lawyers, whoever the right party is for that specific piece of data would answer a few questions into our platform. And then that would produce the corpus of documents that they need. And then through our workflow automation side, that would be sent to the next person that needs to review it, whether that's redlining negotiation or just like needs to know that that happened and that would trigger the next action. And then maybe six months from now, 
the head of legal would want to look and say, okay, how many vendor agreements has this part of our medical group entered into in the last six months? What are the standard terms? And they could use our software basically to see the journey of the whole document and workflow and what terms were agreed to and how it's operating within their organization. That's awesome. Sounds like an amazing solution. I'm curious, your, your website is uh, Spare. What's the thinking behind that? So we are an invite-only platform these days, and it is Spare. It used to be even more Spares, <laughs> and that was on purpose because we, unlike many of our competitors, we also handle the implementation and customization for each of our clients. So Stephen, as I know, SafeArth has done super innovative stuff and has had its hand on the pulse of legal tech for some years now. But many of the enterprise-grade softwares require implementation partners or consultants to get it across the finish line. Our offerings include that within, which is why we call ourselves a trusted technology partner. We have our platform, but we also make sure that it gets across the finish line and we're there to help you maintain and customize as necessary. And because we take such kind of that prideful position in organizations, we want to make sure that we're not overextending ourselves and that we can give people the type of service that we want to give them. And so at this point, we are very lucky enough that we work with a very healthy stable of clients and we're only onboarding clients as it makes sense for our team and makes sense for them. And so we're not, I hate to say this as the marketing person, but we're not out there being like, please sign up for our platform. If you don't sign up for our platform, we're going to die tomorrow. We're in a privileged position where we can say, we have found this problem ourselves. We found a way to solve it. We're working with XYZ clients. If this is a good fit, great. If not, we can you know, try to be a resource for you to make sure that your problem's being fixed. With time, that'll change, obviously. But that's another thing that we kind of... We've operated our business more like a traditional small business um, instead of like a VC have to get every deal, even if it's not well executed type of mindset. And so we have had some people be like, well, you're operating differently than others. And to us, it's like, well, we're operating with a different intentionality maybe or with a different strategy, but it's all in line with kind of how we visualize this going. That's cool. So, you know, about a year ago, Gen AI suddenly became... You've been very nice about not dropping the AI word multiple times. Thank you for that. I only mentioned it once, I think. It was it hard. Was, it, was, it is hard. You marketing types <laughs> love AI. But the world sort of changed in legal tech. How was it before in terms of receptivity to legal tech? And how did generative AI change the attitude of your buyers towards technology? It's been really interesting. I think some people have called this 2023 the year of AI. And I think maybe that is the case in some circles, especially in legal. So going back to the foundations of our company, our company, Tony Tai, who is our founder, who is also an attorney, former software engineer, former guest on your podcast. You guys had a great episode. He started building this, I believe, in late 2017, early 2018. And AI had been a part of the platform, his proprietary AI, since that point. At the beginning, lawyers were very skeptical about AI, so much so that when people would see the software, ask questions, they didn't want us to talk about the AI. They'd say phrases like, I don't want to see how the sausage is getting made, or I don't know how that works, so I want to talk about something else where I can kind of understand how it's working in my system. And so we kind of, as an organization, decided that we weren't going to use AI as the selling point for our business. 
It is a feature. It is not our product. It's something we're proud of. We've invested a lot of time in our own proprietary AI, and that's how we've been operating. And so when this Gen AI buzz came, it was very fun for us because we have been in the space using not Gen AI, but AI for a very long time. And so we already knew kind of the basics and what conversations people might want to have. And it's been a very good kind of gateway drug. We always say in legal tech that document automation is the gateway drug to the other categories. And in many ways, generative AI was the gateway drug to people wanting to have the legal tech conversation. As you know, in-house has been a lot quicker to adopt certain categories of legal tech. And so those conversations have been ongoing and will continue to be ongoing as different businesses see the value, the increasing value in contract data and making decisions quicker and having that organized, what have you. But on the law firm side, there's always been this battle of, is the law firm going to build it? Are they going to hire a vendor? Are they going to work in tandem together? And so it has been very interesting with kind of the generative AI conversations to see that this has kind of been another chapter in that battle of the buy versus build phenomenon. It started with document automation. We had that. Then it was workflow automation. And now it's these AI models and what have you. And so Gen AI really has been the gateway drug and has fueled a lot of, I guess, fires that had died along the way. Because, you know, lawyers get really excited, then they get bored. We're all ADHD to some extent, I really believe. (laughs) So it's been nice to kind of have it reinvigorate a lot of these conversations. And I think us and I know a lot of our competitors and friends in this space have had a lot more conversations and a lot more interest because, you know, now business people are pressuring their legal counsel or outside counsel to have these conversations. And Nothing gets a lawyer to do anything quicker than having their client ask them. So That's right. It's an interesting observation. We've noticed ourselves that the generative AI buzz has reinvigorated, to use your term, the conversation around applications of technology, even if the underlying technology solution is not generative AI based. We, we find we're having conversations now that we had two years ago, but now people are interested and they want to see the solution. Yes. And I think it speaks to... The popularity of the interface, because as you and I know, the tech of ChatGPT is not crazy. That's been around for a long time. It was just the interface and how they released it. Some would say prematurely, but it worked out in their favor. OpenAI did that made people so excited. And it seems so approachable that now hopefully it's giving them hope that other tech is approachable. And so we've tried to kind of facilitate that wavelength and conversations of, yes, other tech is approachable. You might not know exactly what you're getting into at first, but with time, it is so much more helpful than you think. I call it lawyer math, where lawyers just think like if they can't understand something or ascribe value to something immediately, it's not worth it to them, which is the opposite in business. You know, business has these like vision boarding, like every quarterly planning meetings and lawyers within five minutes are bored where they're like, I'm not billing for this. Like, this is not what's happening. And so I think we're trying to transition this excitement into kind of jumping over that lawyer math roadblock that we often have with legal professionals that are just starting to learn about legal tech for the first time. Let's talk a little bit about your personal professional journey. I read somewhere where you said you wanted to be a lawyer since you were in fifth grade. That's sort of an oddly specific time. Tell us a little bit about that desire to become a lawyer. What triggered it and why? It goes really back. And my family and I are still very confused on the infancy of this idea 
in my mind. I know fifth grade because I have evidence of my fifth grade yearbook. They did a little questionnaire for all the fifth graders and it asked what profession you wanted in the future. And I said, lawyer slash politician, because I I believed it was one thing (laughs) at the time. I didn't realize it was separate, you know, career paths. But so I have proof that that was like the first time I was like, this is what I'm doing and pretty much worked ever since that point to get there. And I did. But There are jokes in my family that start when I saw Xena, the warrior princess, I couldn't say it correctly. So I called her Xena, the lawyer princess. I think that started when I was four, (laughs) to which my family still mocks me. And then I had a very weird obsession with Sandra Day O'Connor, in which I ended up dressing like her for Halloween in elementary school. I also had a birthday party at the Capitol in Texas, to which I was, you know, made fun of, but my parents made that work. I think I was very interested in law and order the organization of it, and then also being able to fix things. And I think that's one of the things I really liked as a lawyer as well. As a debt finance attorney, you know, I helped people make sense of either good or bad situations. They were acquiring a company or they had a liquidity crunch or they were trying to figure out how to use their debt more effectively. And it really is a problem solving situation. And I think that's also what I've loved about this journey of entrepreneurship for myself is the ability to solve problems with really smart people. So you you become a lawyer and you practice for five years before making the leap into a startup. What did you learn in terms of your practice that applies to your job today? What, what, what lessons did you take from it? There are so many lessons that you learn from being an associate that I think escaped me while I was in it because I was so stressed out and neurotically terrified that I was letting, you know, senior associates or partners down. But I think time management, attention to detail, attention to detail is drilled into you as a corporate associate. I'm sure on the litigation side as well, I can't speak to that. But also, I think from being a debt finance attorney, the ability to be comfortable with things that you don't know and to learn about them very quickly. There are basic tenants in debt finance that are, you know, in every credit agreement, right? But with every downturn of the economy, there's always alternative credit structures popping up. There's always new financial concepts you have to learn. And when you are a junior associate, it can be really scary. But I kind of figured out early on, like, okay, I might not know this, but I will figure it out. And I believe that is the biggest lesson I learned that served me well in this journey so far of being an entrepreneur, because There are problems that come on my desk every day where I'm like, I don't know how to do this, but I will figure this out. So having the mindset and the fortitude to just not be scared of that is the biggest thing that I still exercise. Did you enjoy the practice? Oh, yeah, I definitely did. I loved the people in it. I loved there are still days where I would love to pop open a credit agreement and know exactly, you know, what ancillary as a junior needs to be drafting and, you know, the issues list. Like there's something. Okay, now you're freaking me out a little bit. (laughs) There is something so nice about the cadence of it, right? And I will say I miss the people so much because I loved the people that I worked with. I had an entrepreneurial kind of bug in me from probably high school on. And so none of my friends, my close friends or family were really shocked by this decision. I think they were like, yeah, I I could see this. Like, that makes sense. So it's very weird because as you know, Stephen, lawyers are very linear thinkers and everyone always asks, they're like, well, you're done with law for good, right? And in my mind, I'm not. In my mind, it's like, I loved it so much and I saw that this was a really cool way to make it better, that this is just the next chapter for me. And maybe I go back to practicing some capacity or maybe I can keep finding ways to make it better. But in my mind, it's just all the same story. Why the leap to hyperdraft? Both why into, you touched a little bit on your family not being surprised you're making a leap into a startup, but 
Elaborate on that a little bit more and, and why Hyperdraft specifically? Well, I met Tony Tai while I was at Goodwin Proctor. He was an M&A and venture capital, I don't associate or senior associate at that point. And I was, you know, doing debt finance deals. And so I don't know if we exactly worked on the same deals, but we were familiar with each other on the same floor of the office. And he was the weird associate that had 12 monitors in his office and looked like a hacker, you know, in this very corporate environment. And so he stuck out like a sore thumb. Why does that not surprise me? (laughs) And we also were very old school. And before the pandemic, we went into the office every day. We'd stay late. We were those people. So we'd go get coffee together and I would ask him what the heck he was working on with those 12 monitors. And I learned that he had already built Hyperdraft and he was using it for some of his work and some of his clients' work. And, you know, it was many months where I just asked him about it conversationally. And then it gets to a point of, you know, being an associate where you start having to really think intentionally about your career. Do I want to be counsel? Do I want to do the race towards partner? Do I want to stay at this firm? What type of specialization do I want? I was having those conversations. And in the back of my mind, I was really thinking... Tony's thing like is pretty cool. And so it was a long time. But with time, I kind of realized that I would always wonder if I hadn't joined him and tried to see if we could make an impact. And so it wasn't a gamble, but it was more so like, I don't want to live with any regrets. So we're going for it. (laughs) Well, that's fair enough. How did you learn marketing? You come as a lawyer and now you're chief marketing officer. How do you get up to speed? Because marketing is a is a distinct profession with its own skills and techniques. It is. And you're learning it on the fly. It's terrifying. It was something I was really scared of. And to be honest, I still have, I still have so much to learn. And I have a lot of imposter syndrome in many situations. But when I first started, I read this book called Growth Hacker Marketing by Ryan Holiday. I believe he was the head marketing for American Apparel. And I had amassed like a a list of 30 books that I told myself I needed to read like really quickly to get up to speed and start interviewing people and what have you, which I did. But in that book, about halfway through, I realized that marketing is a science and an art. And the weird blend of it means that everyone is always learning. So even if you have a ton of experience, it's always changing, which means that you can still kind of put your mark on it or kind of jump in at any point because it's always dynamic, unlike the law, you know, in the law, especially in practice, there are basics everyone has to learn, right? And marketing, really, if you have a great idea and you can execute on it, you can catch up on the rest later. And so that's basically been my strategy ever since is, you know, we had some really cool ideas at the beginning that worked for us. And now we're just going back and making sure the foundation is there while we think of the next, you know, 12 crazy ideas that we're going to test in the market. But it is terrifying. And coming from a legal background, I think I didn't realize the overlap in skills. And I'm still going to, with time, realize the overlap. But at the end of the day, how we write as lawyers and even how we draft provisions is all storytelling. And I have to remind myself that I've been storytelling for years now. And it's just honing that craft and making sure it comes across in the right way. Let's talk about the next 12 crazy ideas (laughs) that you mentioned. You can't do 12 things, obviously. Maybe you can do 12, but you can't do 30. (laughs) Somehow you have to make decisions as to what feature sets you're going to add. What process do you go through to do that? Do you you use user groups? Do you you put things out in beta? How do you figure out what the next crazy idea that you're going to bring to market is? So I think you're talking more on the feature side, which is Tony's domain, but 
on that side, we do have user groups that we've used continuously. We have a great community of colleagues, friends, clients that we test out different, you know, updates and features on. And it's always fun to see that feedback. (laughs) And the funny thing is that I've realized is people give feedback in all sorts of ways. Some of it's really formal. Some of it has no punctuation. Some of it's really angsty. Some of it's not. It's interesting to see how the human brain works with technology, but we have ongoing user groups at all times. And then we also have a very strong advisory board and our advisory board, we really lean to for every quarter. Basically, we are telling them this is the roadmap. This is what we're doing. Please use it out. Please give us feedback. Feedback is a big part of our job. And Tony and I always say it's a double-edged sword because you need it. And some days it's going to be good and some days it's going to be bad. But the second that we stop taking it is going to be to our detriment because we're not building this just for ourselves. In regards to the crazy marketing ideas, I more so talk about how to distribute to lawyers. I think that's the main issue that legal tech marketing has had for a long time. And I think the biggest hurdle to that is for better or worse, people don't understand lawyers because they don't want to. I've seen time and time again, a lot of these legal tech companies hire these great B2B marketers and they're awesome people, but they last a year or two because they start realizing as they comb into the data that lawyers are such a complicated group of people and they can't be put into a box. And then they're like, well, I just feel overwhelmed. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to test this. I don't know how to put them into certain columns of different groups. And I think that's how I resonate with this job on a day-to-day basis is I love lawyers so much. I love our crazy group that we've, you know, I've grown up with since law school. I love the other lawyers that I meet along the way. And because I am one, I'm not as scared by that. And I can make sense of a lot more of the data than some people that maybe don't have that insight because I could imagine, I mean, we're a very insular, weird group, if you think about it. And we're not very forthcoming with information because we all feel that we like have so much that could be used against us, I feel like, that we're just a very misunderstood, quiet, moody group. (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. I've never experienced that with lawyers. So as you deal with, and I guess this is more sales rather than a marketing issue, but as you're dealing with a potential customer, you must deal with the legal department, but I'm sure you must also deal with the technology function and probably finance operations. You must deal with different parts of the organization, which must bring a different mindset to deal with that you have to understand who you're dealing with. Yeah? Completely. The data available to the legal group is only good if it's connected to all the different sources. And legal really is like the middle of the wheel of all these different groups trying to make sure that everyone's, you know, following the rules as much as they will and that no one's really creating any havoc in the organization. I think we always say to our clients, if legal is the only one leading the charge for solution selection or implementation, that's going to be an uphill battle because you need everyone else to buy in as well. You need the sales, you need the finance, you need the IT, you need the ops, you need HR, because all of them can have better documentation, have better experiences with you if everyone's excited about it. And so in our mind, when we see these other groups, we get really excited because we realize the viability of like us being able to help them is higher if more stakeholders are on board. And then also we find that we can kind of help the in-house legal folks, because as you know, there's typically an asymmetry of information of what people think lawyers do versus what lawyers do. And so through the whole standardization implementation process, we can often bridge the gap and be like, hey, sales, like legal is not trying to be annoying. Like legal just has to do these three things you haven't thought about. So like 
by standardizing this, like this is solved. And then also you think better of them because you don't think they have the worst intentions. In a way, we're almost business and family therapists in an organizational capacity, just connecting everybody. And so we have a lot of funny but heartwarming stories so far of just trying to connect organizationally all these digital processes, which I don't think I really understood at first, to be honest. I don't think I realized kind of the family dynamic of how legal is kind of the middle child and the parent of like an organization. But it is really true that you need everyone's buy-in and everyone needs to be on the same page for it to have the greatest utility. Tell me a little bit about the goals of Hyperdraft. Where do you see the company going over the next year or two? Not trying to get you to disclose any proprietary secrets, but just as a general proposition, where do you see your position in the market going? So I think we've been very intentional about doing the growth the way that we have. And I think that will continue for the next one or two years where we are still an invite-only platform working with people that we really think we can make a difference and that we're a good fit for. I think also in the next two years, we will have a lot more features and I think we will have a far more robust platform, which is so exciting because every time I look back on our history, every year our engineering team increases our capabilities by almost 70%. And it's so cool to see the journey of the product from when even I joined to where it is now. And another thing that I think is really interesting is the ability to, you know, play well with others. I don't know if you've noticed this. I know you guys are very in tune with legal tech ecosystem, but for the longest time, it was really hard to do legal tech partnerships. Implementations have always been an issue with certain providers. And so um, we've internally on our side been trying to find a way to like make it as easy as possible (laughs) to play well with others and what have you. So I'm hoping that in the future, maybe that will be easier as well. We do have a platform that, you know, we are comprehensive and you can use us exclusively, but we also realize that, you know, other people have tech stacks that existed before us and we really want it to be as easy of an experience as possible for our clients. So I do hope in the next two years that we have the ability to, you know, all play together a little bit better in legal tech. Let's broaden the lens out a little bit. There's been all sorts of discussion in the legal profession about the impact of generative AI on the profession itself. Putting aside hyperdraft specifically, what's your view as to the impact of this? It's not really new technology, but certainly new to most people technology on the the profession itself. I'm not going to do a doomsday answer. Let's see here. So I don't know how much effect Gen AI itself will have on the profession. I think, like I said earlier, it'll be a gateway drug to more conversations about AI use generally and legal and legal tech. However, I don't think it'll go away fully. In my mind, I see it as the new interface for Google in some regard. And I think it does solve one big problem for people, which is the blank page phenomenon of sometimes when you're just staring at something, you don't know how to get started. And with ChatGPT, that can go away. So do I think it's really going to affect the business of law? Not necessarily, but I think day to day, it might help with that roadblock of the blank page and keep people learning about technology and interested in technology. So in many ways, it's more like a new Google and a catalyst for tech literacy, as opposed to being an instrumental player and perhaps changing the business of law in my mind. One thing that I do find interesting that I'm hoping lawyers will kind of 
as they start seeing it more, we'll have like a light bulb moment and will help us all out. Those of us trying to, you know, fight the good fight and make their lives easier with technology. I know people don't believe me when I say that, but I, I truly mean that is I don't know if you've experienced this, Stephen, but people out the gate with Gen AI had like a zero or 100 reaction to it. Absolutely. It was like everyone, like the profession's going to die. This is the worst thing ever, or this is the best thing ever. And anyone that has any complaints doesn't understand what they're talking about. I think our team has been in the middle, which has been a very interesting place to be. And I think that's the most productive place to be because I think that's more where the reality sits. And I realize, you know, as a marketer, WWE has mastered it for 50 years. Being the heel or being the victor is like way easier than being in the middle, right? But I don't know that that's where progress is made. So I'm hoping that the age of AI, the year 2023, those polarized conversations about AI and generative AI will hopefully calm down. We'll get more to a middle type of realistic framework for thinking about these things. And Hopefully that will continue with tech, but really in legal tech, and you know, it's been exacerbated by this latest iteration of AI, it's been so polarized for so long. And I'm really just seeking a future where people have gotten over that and they move to the m- more mature middle. I hope that's the case. I, I certainly think we're moving in that direction. So I see it the same way. Ashley, we, we're at our time. I want to thank you very much for your insights and your views. It's been fascinating. Thank you so much. Yes, thanks so much. Great chatting with you. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.